How's it going, West Village family? Uh, welcome to the online gathering. Uh, if you're new, want to extend a special welcome to you. Maybe you're tuning in since we've been online and uh, this is your first time participating with us. Great to have you. My name is Chris, one of the leaders at West Village. I have the joy and privilege of being a part of the West Village family and doing a lot of the teaching and preaching. And so it's a great uh, honor to be uh, doing this with you today and have you join us. Uh, we are in week four of a teaching series that we are calling A Collision of Kingdoms. And it's um, essentially our attempt to try and reconcile what is happening in the world with regards to politics. How are we to think when it comes to the political arena? How do we take our Christian worldview and the political realities that we uh, see in our world and bring those uh, two things together. And one of the things we've been doing through the series is we've been taking questions. We've been getting lots of questions, lots of emails, lots of comments on our videos, um, text messages into the number that's on the screen. And we we shot a number of videos uh, just trying to answer some of those questions, collect those questions, answer them. Uh, You can catch those videos in a number of different ways. You can go right to our YouTube page. They're all posted on there. Uh, we will be, have been and will be releasing them via social media, all our social media feeds. So uh, Instagram and Facebook, they're going to be going out on there. Uh, as well, at the end of this online gathering, we're just going to run them all. So if you want to just stick around and watch them, uh, we'd love to have you do that. And you can kind of interact with those things. But we're going to wrap this series up by going to Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 12, open up there. And really what we're going to answer today is uh, this question, like, where do we go from here? So we've kind of unpacked all these different ideas. And really the question that I want to wrestle with is, is how do we live in this world? Like not how do necessarily, how do we do politics? Although we'll definitely talk about that. But as Christians, as those who are functionally exiles or on the margins or on the outside of society, uh, at least in the sense of our worldview, how do we live within the world that we currently find ourselves in? And then we'll make some specific political applications. So if you have your Bible, Mark chapter 12, uh, and, and what we're going to do here is we're going to just look at a, an incident where Jesus has an interaction with some uh, religious and political leaders, and he kind of addresses this question for us, okay? So Mark chapter 12, uh, picking up in verse 13, here is what Mark records about Jesus. He says, later... Uh, they, being the religious leaders, sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And so uh, what Mark is trying to do here is he's trying to set up the scene for us by by letting us know that there's a little bit of tension in the air. Uh, but this, this uh, verse, verse 13, it doesn't really do full justice to it unless you kind of understand the grander scope of what's happening at this point in uh, the, the, the ministry of Jesus and where, where Jesus kind of finds himself. So, so just to kind of give us some context, Jesus at this point is in the city of Jerusalem. He's been doing public ministry for roughly three and a half years. He's gathered quite a following. He's made a name for himself. People are super interested in who he is. He's at kind of the height of his public ministry. And at this particular point, he's in the middle of what we call the Passion Week. The Passion Week is the week that's le- that leads up to uh, ultimately um, the, the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus. And so um, <clears throat> what has happened is Jesus has kind of come into uh, the city. We have Palm Sunday. There's a huge celebration. Uh, And then at at this time, though, what we have to understand is there's a whole bunch of political and religious tensions kind of at play. So in the city of Jerusalem, what's being celebrated during the Passion Week is what is known as the, the celebration of Passover. 
And for the Jewish people, Passover was the high point of their calendar. It was, it's a big deal, very, very big deal to them. And so the city would get flooded with people coming to, the, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, at this time, the, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation. So Roman kind of, uh, Rome rather, governed most of the known world. Uh, and, and they were a tyrannical government. The Jews uh, did not, Jewish people did not like the, the Roman uh, Empire for obvious reasons. And the Romans really wanted to make sure they maintained their power. And so they, there's kind of two things that are happening at the same time. Here we have a bunch of Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which is really a celebration of the Jewish people's release from a tyrannical government. So it's a hearkening back to the Exodus narrative where God redeems and rescues his people out of slavery from the land of Egypt and from Pharaoh. And so there's kind of this, this like, this religious, semi-political vision that the Jewish people have for, for a day where they will be free. We're just like God sent Moses to come and rescue and save his people. One day, God's going to save somebody to rescue and save us from the tyranny that we currently find ourselves in. And the Roman government was keenly aware that this was kind of the undercurrent and the feeling amongst the people. And so what they would do is they would bring all these uh, Roman soldiers into the city to police to make sure there were no, you know, religious zealots who were going to take this Passover idea too seriously, if you will. And so there's these kind of tensions in the air. Every time you saw, if you were a Jewish person, every time you saw a Roman soldier, it was this vivid reminder of the reality that you were under Roman occupation. But at the same time, the city is chock full of people celebrating you know, celebrating the freedom that they once experienced in the Exodus, but anticipating a day when one would come who would free them again. And enter into this is Jesus. Enter into this moment, it's Jesus, right? He comes into the city and he's being celebrated, Palm Sunday, celebrated as the coming Messiah. Uh, he goes into the temple and, you know, people are all around him. And, and this moment is just like, it's so religiously and politically tense. And this is where Jesus finds himself as he has this interaction with this particular group of people. Now, keep in mind, their motives are not pure. Mark says in verse 13, they want to catch him in his words. The religious leaders don't like him. The, the Roman government does not like him. And Jesus is such a controversial figure that Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians were willing to work together. These were two groups of people that did not like each other. They did not ever get along. But here, Jesus, their common enemy, causes them to align their ideas and come to try and catch Jesus in a lie. And so look at what they do. They, they come up with a question. It's a really crafty question to try and trap Jesus. Here's what they say, verse 14. They come to him and, and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So they're just kind of, you know, sucking up here a little bit, setting Jesus up, right? <clears throat> and then here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? So they, they come to Jesus. They are trying to catch him. In this moment where they want to put him in a position where he cannot win, and they ask the question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, just to give you some context, the imperial tax was a tax that was issued by the Roman government to the Jewish people. It was 
a tax that every adult male uh, in the Jewish community had to pay. It was the, roughly the equivalent of a day's wage, and it was this tax that was used to basically functionally fund the Roman, um, the Roman uh, militia and army. So in a sense, what was happening is the Jewish people were being taxed to further uh, enslave themselves to a tyrannical government. So, so the Jewish people did not like the tax. Okay, So here you have this religious reality where, where the Jewish people did not like the tax, but then you have this political reality where obviously Rome depended on the tax. They depended on the tax to fund their, their uh, army and their militia in order to keep everyone else under their thumb, under their rule and reign in line. So, so this moment is is just wrought full of religious and political tension. If Jesus says yes to this, yes, you should pay the tax, then he will be, by all accounts, by the Jewish people, he will be disregarded as a false teacher. The ministry that he has built, his credibility with the people, it'll all be gone in a moment. But if he says if he says to the people, no, you don't, you don't have to pay the tax, uh, then the Pharisees, the Herodians, the religious leaders would go to the Roman government. They would tell the Roman government that Jesus says that people don't have to pay the tax. He's causing a stir amongst the people. And the Roman government would come and, and take his life. So he's got his credibility on the line. He's got his life on the line. And Jesus finds himself in this moment right here, kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the tension is utterly palpable. What does he say? Well, let's take a look. Second half of verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Okay, so he didn't, he didn't take the bait on them buttering him up. Why are you trying to trap me? He said, bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and Jesus asked them whose image is on it and whose inscription uh, and whose inscription Caesar's they replied. So Jesus says, Hey, like I want to see a coin. So they pull out a coin. Jesus takes the coin. He holds it up. Now this coin would have had the picture of Caesar on it. And it was much like our money today. It wasn't really merely at least a function of commerce. It was also a function of propaganda. You were communicating something with with your currency. And so on this currency, it was ultimately a, a worship uh, statement back to Caesar. And so Jesus holds us up and he says like, let's, let's see who's on it. Caesar's on it. Well, we look at what he says next, verse 17. Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God's what is God's? And then Mark records that the people were amazed. They try and trap Jesus. And Jesus answers them. And with this one answer, Jesus literally sends out a ripple through all of human history. I mean, I don't think we understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. So often we look at it, this text in particular and we see that they're trying to trap Jesus and we hear Jesus's response and our immediate reaction is, is basically that this is, this is kind of like Jesus being Jesus, right? I mean, he gives pithy answers to hard questions. He's a smart guy. That's, that's what he does, right? 
But this is so much more than that. You see, there's, there's two massive ideas that come out of this text that, that really shape how Christians have traditionally thought and should think about politics. Uh, like Jesus is saying some pretty monumental things that have really deeply impacted Western civilization and all of church history. Functionally, they've really ultimately shaped all of human history. So what I want to do is pull out two kind of big ideas. And these are somewhat going to be reviewed from things that we've talked about, but I want to apply them in slightly different ways. The first idea is this, where Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, Jesus is saying that government is God's idea, and he calls us to submit to our governing authority. So Jesus says that government is God's idea, and he calls us to submit to our governing authorities. So what we see here is that Jesus clearly affirms the role and the influence of government. He, he does not deny the significance of government and specifically the government that he was underneath in Mark chapter 12, but rather he recognizes their legitimacy. Now, he doesn't agree with everything they do. He doesn't agree with everything they say, but he recognizes that government has legitimacy. Really, what Jesus is pointing to, what he's alluding to, he's actually, he's actually foreshadowing what uh, Paul is going to say in Romans 13, what Peter's going to write in 1 Peter chapter 2, which is that God is the one who instituted and establishes government. Not just government as we know it currently, but government, the idea of government. That if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, like we talked about uh, in previous weeks, that government is actually God's idea. That with God's dominion mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, uh, that, that God gave us the idea of governance, uh, governance, this idea that we would have dominion over the earth, that we'd organize one another, we'd organize ourselves, we'd, we would lead and love the world. This is, this is a function of governance. And what Jesus is doing here is he's ultimately pointing to the fact that government is not bad, that government is something that was uh, was in, uh, conceived of by God himself, invented, if you will, by God himself. Jesus models this for us. Uh, when he goes to the cross, he models the reality that government is something that we are to submit ourselves to. Uh, what, what Jesus is ultimately saying is that God is the one who establishes government. We are called to submit to government in the same way that we are called to submit to God. And Jesus, when he sits before Pilate, what does he say to Pilate? He says, who put you in power here? Why do you have any power at all? You have power at all because God deemed it to be so. Now, this is not in any way to be a model for how we are to respond to government. But the reality is this, that God, or Jesus rather, recognizes that government is something that is instituted by God. And the only reason that government even has any power or any authority is because God deemed it to be so. Jesus is, is recognizing the providential hand of God over all of human history. That government is not a bad thing. Government is a good thing. That just like so many things that God has given us, things like family, things like order, things like the ability to think, science, knowledge. These are gifts that God gives us. The church, a gift that God gives to us. Why does he give these gifts, including the gift of government? He gives it to us for the flourishing of humanity. That's the purpose of the gift of government. It's God's common grace for our world. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 13 when he talks about government. He talks about Government is being the means by which God brings justice to the world. They punish evildoers and they, 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 
They give mercy and grace to those who do good. And so what this means for us as followers of Jesus is that we are not to completely disconnect ourselves from the political task, but rather we're to actually be involved. We're to actually be involved in the political task and be a part of the way in which God wants to use government to bring about human flourishing in our world. So what does this look like? We've talked about this a lot, but but I want to talk about some very specific ideas for us as we think about what it means to be involved in politics in the moment that we find ourselves. And the first thing we have to recognize is this. It's just the idea that Christians have something very unique to bring to the political conversation. Now, when we start to talk about uh, Christians in politics and church involved in politics, immediately what can happen is people can kind of say, whoa, like back the bus up here for a second, uh, Chris. Uh, the church and Christians have no place in politics. We, we talked about this before, but, but this is the idea of the separation of church and state. And what people will often say is that, that you are supposed to leave your religion out of the political task. You're supposed to come to the political task without bringing your religious ideas, your religious baggage to the table, to which I would say simply it's, it's an impossible task. It's an impossible, it's actually intellectually irresponsible uh, to, to conceive of this idea. Because the reality is, Religion is is functionally a person's most deeply held beliefs. And every single person, whether you identify as a follower of Jesus or you identify as some other, uh, you know, you have some other religious affiliation or you identify as an agnostic or even as if you identify as an atheist or a naturalist, you have deeply held beliefs. You have a worldview that you bring to the political task with you. And it's impossible to separate a person from their most deeply held beliefs and then to just operate in the political arena. And so a Christian can't do this. And I would say this to all of us, not only should we not do that as followers of Jesus, but as Christians, I believe that we actually have some unique ideas that are necessary for the political arena. They're necessary for the political task to be done in a way that is going to produce the most human flourishing. Now, we, haven't, we certainly have not always lived that out over the 2,000 years of church history. But if we were to embrace, a, a truly embrace a biblical worldview and bring that biblical worldview with us into the political task, I think what people would find is that it would actually be better for humanity, not worse. And so what I want to do is I want to run through a few ideas that, that we hold on to specifically that are unique to us as Christians that I think actually make the political, uh, the, the political arena better, not worse. They actually make society better, not worse. They actually produce more human flourishing, not less. And, and I want to share a couple of these. Now, full disclosure, uh, these are um, things that I learned from many other people. Uh, there's a, a guy by the name of John Tyson. I, I read a bunch of his work and listened to some of his work this week. There's a book by, uh, by the title Jesus in Politics, which is probably a book you should read when you're doing a sermon series on Jesus and uh, politics. And I got some of these ideas from there, but I want to share just three that I thought were significant and helpful. The first one is this. As Christians, we have a vision of dignity, value, and worth for all human beings. See, at the very center of the Christian worldview is this idea of what we call the imago Dei. This is Latin, Latin phrase. It simply means the image of God. And this is the idea that every single person, regardless of race, 
regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation or sexual identification, regardless of religion, regardless of anything, is made in the image and likeness of God. And because they are made in the image and likeness of God, God has bestowed on them particular value, dignity, and worth. And Christians understand this. And Christians govern with this as a a standard operating principle that drives their policymaking and drives their decision-making and drives the way that they, they look at the political task, or at least they should. In fact, I would say to you, any policy that, a, that a, a government or a Christian puts out that does not hold to this idea that every single person has value in the eyes of God and they are, they are worthy of dignity and value and worth is actually an unchristian policy. It's interesting, if you go back to uh, Nazi Germany in World War II, <clears throat> uh, one of the things that Adolf Hitler did in order to get the German people to turn against uh, the Jews who were among him is he essentially dehumanized them. Uh, there was a phrase that he would use to refer to them. He would call them useless eaters. In other words, they were, they were less than human. They were, they were sort of a waste of space and they just consumed and something happens when you take away a person's value or dignity or worth and they become dehumanized. It becomes easy to abuse and marginalize them. At the very center of the Christian faith is the idea that we, we actually value all people. If you, if you look through church history, not always have we gotten this right, to be sure. But when we have gotten it right, it has made massive differences in the world. We, we talked about some of these examples, but in the Roman Empire, for example, the church were, were champions of women's rights, champions of the rights of the unborn and children. Christians are on the front lines of the adoption conversation. Christians are on the front lines of, of the healthcare conversation. Most of the hospitals and the, 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 the non-for-profit or the NGOs around the world have been started by Christian organizations. Christians were on the front end of the, the, the end, uh, the movement rather, to end slavery. Why is this? It's because of our worldview. We don't want to, we don't want to leave that out of the political conversation. We want to bring it to the political conversation. And any political vision that does not embrace this idea that all people are made in the image and likeness of God and have bestowed upon them specific, special dignity, value, and worth is not a Christian idea. It's not a Christian political vision, and it must be discarded and disregarded as such. Second one is this, and this one might not seem like a good one, but it's a good one. It's that Christians hold a a suspicion or a general mistrust of both people and power. Now, this is a gift. This is definitely a gift. As Christians, we hold to this uh, doctrine of human depravity. Some might call it total depravity, but, but uh, not all Christians would agree with that. But, but all Christians would agree with the idea that, that we hold to this idea of human depravity. Now, the secular worldview that, that we are currently you know, in, that Canada the, the, is kind of the worldview that Canadians are holding right now. In this moment, we find ourselves in the West is kind of shifting to this secular humanistic worldview it doesn't espouse the idea of human depravity, right? It's, it's actually the opposite of that. Uh, the secular worldview would not say that humans are the problem, but rather humans are the solution to the problem. And so the secular worldview would say, if we can progress, if we can just come up with the best and the right ideas, that we can somehow move beyond the problems that we find ourselves in. Christians would say, uh, that's actually not true. 
humans are not the solution to the problem. Humans are the problem. And it's the brokenness of humanity that has gotten us into the mess that we are in. And we need somebody from outside of the system to come in and save us. That's why Jesus is known as our savior. And so we don't look to ourselves for salvation. We look to Jesus for salvation, but we know that we can actually, because of the power of God, we can actually move and make changes through human history. But here's the interesting thing about this suspicion that we have about people and people in power in particular. It's that, it's, it's that this idea that actually produced democracy. See, see, the idea of democracy actually grew out of the garden of, of the Christian worldview. See, we take democracy for granted, but for most of human history, democracy wasn't actually a thing. This is a pretty recent invention. But democracy is actually rooted in the suspicion of our leaders that humans cannot be trusted with ultimate power, that absolute power absolutely corrupts. And it's out of this that we get the democratic process that we live under now. Uh, interestingly enough, if you if you think back, you don't have to think too far back, but to the, the 2020 election, there, there's a lot of bad things that happened in the 2020 election, but one of the the good things that we saw in the 2020 election, one of the, the uh, kind of the the positive outcomes of this was that, and and I you know I'm not I'm not taking sides here. I'm just stating some facts. But but Donald Trump did everything within his power to try and undermine the democratic process. He turned every which way that he possibly could to try and find a loophole that would allow him to stay in government. But he couldn't find it. Why is that? It's because the founding fathers, the ones who put together the, uh, the American Constitution, the original framers of that Constitution knew, they absolutely knew that human beings could not be trusted. And as a result, what did they do? They put in all kinds of checks and balances. Uh, this is why in Canada we have local representation. This is why we have an official opposition. Because Christians recognize that humans aren't good, governments aren't good, only God is good. Third thing is this, third thing that Christians uniquely bring to the political task or the political conversation is that the presence and power and favor of God rests on the Christian. Now, I want to be careful here not to uh, take a text or, or a set of texts that are, that are descriptive and turn them into prescriptive texts. But if you work your way through the Old Testament, it's unbelievable to, to just to see how God works in and through his people, specifically when they are in positions of power in the government. Uh, we have incidents of prayer and fasting. We have dream interpretation. We have supernatural experiences. We see the sovereignty of God put on display through the government of all nations. Well, we see this in the life of Joseph and Moses and Esther and Nehemiah. There's endless in, uh, incidents where we see God do remarkable things through his people. We have to recognize that we as followers of Jesus carry with us the presence and favor of God everywhere that we go. And that includes in the political arena. 
Now, before I move on to my next point, here is what I would say. There have been a lot of bad things that have been done in the name of politics. Politics has the potential for much evil in our world. We know the stories. We know that Christians involved in politics have done horrendous things. But something beautiful can happen. Something precious, something God-honoring, something that is good for all of humanity can happen when the Christian, when the church, when we get this right. When we keep Jesus at the center of our political endeavors, when we seek the well-being and flourishing of those around us. We see the glory of God put on display. We, we talked about this uh, particular individual a couple weeks ago, but William Wilberforce, the age of 20, comes to faith in Jesus, becomes a career politician. Him and his friends, uh, they, they become dismayed and abhorred by the, <clears throat> by the transat uh, transatlantic slave trade and through political means eventually bring the end of that in Britain. Uh, one uh, historian, David Davis, wrote this about Wilberforce. He said, the abolitionists demonstrated that religion and conscience can be a force for good in the world, that the darkest instincts and destructive interests of humanity can sometimes be overcome, and that foreign policy idealism is possible and powerful. While there is little evidence that human nature has changed for the better over the past two millennia, a few historical events like Britain's abolition of its extremely profitable slave, tra slave trade suggests, suggests that human history has also been something more than an endless contest of greed and power. Let me ask us, would somebody write that about the moment we are in right now? about the way that the church, the way that Christians have been involved in politics, would somebody write about this moment and say the world is better right now because of how the church has behaved and acted and asserted itself in the political arena? That we've been a beacon for justice, for mercy, for grace and compassion in our world. Church, we have to do better. We have to see our politics as so much more than politics. Our politics isn't really about politics. Our politics is really about Jesus. And the second that we get that wrong and we conflate the two, we end up right where we are. And so we as, as God's people have to regain this vision that yes, we are to enter into the political spectrum but we are to do it in such a way that is to bring much honor and glory to Jesus, which leads right into my second point, which is this. Jesus says, give in, in Mark chapter 12, he says, give to Caesar, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that while God is the one who instituted government. And while we should be actively involved in that process, the second thing he's saying is this, is that Christians should resist the government. Now, now, what I'm not saying is resist in the sense of civil disobedience. What I am saying is this, Jesus is, is drawing a line between the two things, between politics and the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is for us that we need to resist the urge to have a political vision for the kingdom of heaven. As I've already alluded to, what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 12 is, is so deeply profound. 
shaping all of human history. See, this is the first time in the history of God's people that, that Jesus has drawn a clear line of demarcation between the sphere of government and the sphere of God's people. See, up until this point, God's relationship with his people has, has been a nationalistic and political relationship. The, the nation of Israel was a theocracy of which God was the one who was seated on the throne over their nation. And here, what we see, and this is so significant, we can't miss this, Jesus is legitimizing a secular government, and this represents a massive shift for the people of God. Jesus is ultimately preparing people for what is going to come next, what the new covenant is going to look like, that God's relationship with them is no longer going to be a nationalistic relationship. That this here, what we see in Mark chapter 12, is the beginning of ultimately the next step in God's redemptive history. And we've seen this unfolding. If you know the story of God, this has been unfolding from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God gives the creation mandate. It's to fill the earth and subdue it. It's more than just one person or one people. It's to, it's to multiply. It's, it's for the whole earth. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant where God tells Abraham that he is going to be blessed, but he is going to be blessed to be a blessing that through his offspring, the nations will be blessed. Then the nation of Israel is established and, and the nation of Israel is placed among all the other nations and all the other nations that don't know who the God of the Bible is have the privilege of looking in to see how the nation of Israel is different, but not just the nation of Israel is different, the God of the nation of Israel is different. And then Jesus comes on the scene and with Jesus entering into the, the scene, he plants these seeds for uh, a vision that transcends beyond the nation of Israel. Right here in Mark chapter 12, this is the beginning of this vision for God's people that transcends beyond just the nation of Israel. And in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus uh, post-resurrection is about to ascend, he gives his disciples the, the decree, the command to go into all the nations, all the nations and baptize. And then in Acts chapter two, we have the incident of Pentecost where people come from multiple nations back to the city of Jerusalem and the gospel is preached and proclaimed in many languages and many people come to faith. And then in the book of Acts, we see churches planted. We see non-Jewish converts, Gentile converts coming into the kingdom of heaven. And what we see now is churches being planted all over the world. Churches being planted in every nation, every tribe, every tongue. In fact, the Western world is not the center of Christianity anymore. It's now in Asia. And then at the end of God's story, the book of Revelation, we are given this picture of what the new heavens and the new earth are gonna look like. And what's the picture? It's a picture of every nation, every tribe, every tongue gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping, worshiping Jesus. Now, why is this relevant to the political conversation? Because what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 12 is he's laying a foundation for us what things should look like. See, there is no longer any Christian nation. There is now only nations, many nations that will have Christians in them. So for us, this radically informs our politics, and how we perform the political task. 
So we need to, and this is a real need. When I talk about resisting the government, when I talk about Jesus informing us here, calling us to resist the government, what I'm talking about is this idea that we need to resist the temptation to try and take our nation back for God. This is not our task. This is not what we have been called to because our primary allegiance is not to Canada. It is not to any one particular nation. It is to the kingdom of God. We, and this is a beautiful privilege that we have because of where we're positioned, because of the call of Jesus on our life, we can have social and political agility as we engage in the conversation that we're having. So we are not hemmed in by one particular political vision, one particular political party, or one particular political leader. In fact, we shouldn't be. We we should be able to find aspects and threads of truth on all sides of the political spectrum. All sides that at least give any honor or credence to that Imago Dei that we talked about. This idea that that God has, has breathed his image on all of humanity. If there's any shred of truth to any political side or, or political leader or political policy, we as Christians, we can embrace it. We, we don't have a team. Uh, we don't have a leader that we, that we have to follow. We don't have a party line that we, have to, that we have to stand by because we're part of God's kingdom. And our mission as we engage in the political task is to do so with this eschatological hope. This, the word eschatology means you know, the study of future things. This eschatological hope, this future hope that we have. Meaning this, that we have this vision that Jesus is giving us here in Mark chapter 12. And we take that with us into our political task. Karl Barth, theologian, wrote this about the church. He says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts in a way that is full of promise. In other words, we don't do our version, the Christian version of the political thing. We do something radically different. We're free. We're free from the political strings that have been hooked into our society. We get to build something completely countercultural and completely different because of the hope and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, because of what Jesus has said in Mark chapter 12 and what he is doing in our lives. We have this privilege of creating this alternative community, this alternative reality And that's where our hope lies. This is where our resistance lies. When I say resistance, I'm not talking about disobedience. I mean resisting the urge, the urge and the pressure to be dragged into the gutter of political ideologies. As Christians, we submit to an authority that is beyond this world. Just like Jesus was willing to submit himself, humble himself even unto death, we as Christians, we do not submit to the authorities of this world. They are not not the authorities that we ultimately answer to. We ultimately answer to the authority of Jesus in our lives. So because of that, we're free. We're free to enter into the political task in such a way that we can use it for the glory of God. It's a beautiful truth. 
were functionally political exiles. So as we wrap this series up, I want to share just two quick thoughts. First one is this, participate in the political task. Vote, pray, demonstrate in a way that's appropriate. Make your voice heard. That is part of what we are called to do. Second thing is this, do it in a way that is charitable. charitable. Do it in a way that is full of grace. Do it in a way that, that is full of love. Do it in a way that makes much of Jesus. And then if you've heard nothing else through this entire series, I want you to hear this. Our political mantra, our political drumbeat, it's the same that it has always been throughout all of church history, throughout all of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. Whether we operate under communism or capitalism, whether it's the early church or the underground church or the institutional church, whether we have a position of favor or we are cultural uh, exiles, our mantra is the same. Jesus is Lord. And listen, listen to me on this. A day is coming when Western society will go away. What we know as Western civilization will pass. And when people are dissecting what took place in Western civilization and they're, they're looking at the church, they're not going to ask about our political alignments. They're going to ask, did they make much of Jesus? Were they true to what they believed? Did they, did they live for the kingdom of heaven to grow the church, to love the poor and the marginalized, to, to share the gospel, to be champions of, of those who are desperate for someone to give them a voice? And I hope the answer is yes. I hope, I hope that when people look at the church in this moment, back through the lens of history, they will say the church was faithful to Jesus. So may our political mantra be, Jesus is Lord. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are Lord. We thank you that we can call you Lord. We thank you that you've given us a vision for our life that is so much bigger than one country, one, one nation. You've given us a vision for the world that is you. It is, is hope-filled. It is full of possibility. You have this deep desire for your people to rise up, to not be to not be stuck on the sidelines, to not be quiet and passive, but to be vocal in our declaration that you are Lord and in our, in our vocal, in our love for those who need love, vocal in speaking out into injustice, loving those who, who feel like nobody is giving them a voice. And ultimately, Lord, you want your church to proclaim <laughs> a bigger vision that you are Lord. May you give us the grace to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.